the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program as well as engineering and... Uh, I'm grateful for that as well. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Gary Chapman. He has uh, re-released a book titled God Speaks Your Love Language, How to uh, Experience and Express God's Love. Uh, It's coming out later this hour. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Alistair Begg. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard here on KPDQ FM and True Talk 800 AM, our sister station. He is... um, Going to join us to talk about his book, The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. He focuses on the life of Joseph. Um, Truth for Life is our ministry of the month. So you have opportunities to uh, acquire the book, and there's also an ebook you can download. We'll talk more about that when he joins me in the 5 o'clock hour. But first, some of the developing news stories of the day. Some overheated voting machines in Palm Beach County added to the election recount chaos in Florida today, forcing a new uh, a new tally for 175,000 early votes. That was actually Tuesday, I should clarify. Meanwhile, Democratic incumbent U.S. Senator Bill Nelson filed new lawsuits and embattled election official Brenda Snipes said it was uh, time for her to move on from her position. However, what she meant by that was in two years she'll move on from her position, which means she'll be overseeing the 2020 presidential election. President Trump's legal team is finalizing responses to questions from special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, according to sources. And CNN has sued the Trump administration to have correspondent Jim Acosta's White House credentials restored. Legendary uh, reporter Bob Woodward thinks the news network is making a mistake and the death toll in California's deadliest recorded wildfire has risen to 48. Uh, They expect that number will continue to rise. A month after starting their journey, Central American migrant uh, caravans are using longer, safer routes to the U.S. border. Some have already reached uh, some parts of the border. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Well, the lead story, the recount has been delayed in Florida. The deadline is looming there as well. Uh, The recount was delayed uh, after its voting machines overheated, forcing officials to restart the recount of about 175,000 early votes, according to Susan Butcher, the county's supervisor of elections. Butcher said the ballots didn't tabulate properly and that two machines from the machine's vendor have been flown in to uh, fix the, uh, rather I should say technicians, have been flown in to fix the machines while election um, office workers continue the recount. The Sun Sentinel of South Florida reported. Butcher said uh, yesterday that her office would not be able to meet the 3 p.m. Eastern time Thursday deadline the state had imposed despite a 24-hour operation, the Miami Herald reported. And Leon County Circuit Judge Karen Givers said that she would grant an extension until November the 20th. The report said she concluded that the county could not possibly meet the deadline with its eight machines, according to the paper. Well, the developments added to the tumult in the political background a battleground state. More than half of Florida's 67 counties began a recount process that's unprecedented, even in a state notorious for settling elections by razor-thin margins. 
In addition, lawyers for incumbent Senator Bill Nelson, Democrat from Florida, filed a federal lawsuit claiming Florida is disenfranchising voters by not counting mail-in ballots it received after Election Day. Well, state law requires all mail ballots be received when the polls close, which is 7 o'clock p.m. November the 6th. And a day after, former Florida Governor Jeb Bush called for uh, her to resign in battle. Broward County Supervisor of Elections Brenda Snipe said it's time to move on from her role overseeing the Florida County office. She's been under fire for missteps during Florida's recount saga. And as I mentioned, she said she'll be moving on rather slowly. That'll be in 2020. Well, President Trump's legal team is finalizing answers to written questions from uh, special counsel Robert Mueller and could submit them as soon as the end of this week. Two sources familiar with the matter are saying the answers concern questions about whether the Trump campaign colluded with Russian officials during the 2016 presidential election campaign. The president has repeatedly denied any such collusion with Moscow, the president's lawyers and Mueller's investigators. They've engaged in ongoing discussions for several months about the possibility of an in-person interview with the president, as well as the president submitting written questions or rather answers to their questions. And CNN filed a federal lawsuit against the Trump administration on Tuesday, demanding that the White House restore the press credentials of reporter Jim Acosta after it was suspended last week. But Press Secretary Sarah Sanders called the move more grandstanding from CNN. The White House yanked Acosta's pass after he got into a contentious debate with the president and refused to give up a microphone as the entire press pool looked on. It was just the latest case of Trump clashing with Acosta, the White House correspondent for the network Trump regularly derides as a purveyor of fake news. Legendary journalist Bob Woodward is not a fan of the lawsuit. On Tuesday, he criticized CNN for taking legal action against the president and charged that too many media figures have become emotionally unhinged. That's his word. The remedy isn't the isn't suing the administration, Woodward said at the Global Financial Leadership Conference in Naples, Florida. It's more serious reporting about what he's doing. Judge Napolitano, who works for uh, Fox Network, said that CNN has a good case against the White House, while Howard Kurtz said that CNN's suit against Trump is more about PR than it is about the law. We'll see what uh, the law has to say about it. The death toll in the largest wildfire in California history rose to 48 on Tuesday as the remains of six additional people were found, officials said. The human remains, which were found in Paradise, Butte County, were located in homes, according to the sheriff at a news conference speaking on Tuesday. The death toll in the campfire was expected to continue rising. More than 130,000 acres of land are still burning in Butte County, as officials said. Nearly 6,000 firefighters, per, firefighting personnel rather, continue to assist in the area where 35 percent of the fire was contained. Only 35%. And one month ago, 1,000 people started walking from northern Honduras, beginning a journey that they hoped would end with a job in the United States. Now they're about halfway to Tijuana, Mexico, where many will apply for asylum or pay a smuggler to get them over the border to Houston or San Jose or Omaha, Nebraska. They've endured heat, humidity, wind, rain, cold during these 1,400 miles as President Trump has insisted on border integrity, national security and enforcement of immigration laws. Their numbers have swelled to 11,500, including several subsequent caravan days 
uh, days behind, according to Mexican media reports. Well, the lead caravan is resting in the Benito Juarez uh, Auditorium in Guadalajara on Wednesday. They're waiting for instructions on where they will um, go next. That's for tomorrow. In Guadalajara, the caravan is 1,400 miles from Tijuana, a city at the border south of San Diego. Members of the caravan voted in Mexico City last week to take the longer and much safer route uh, that's west instead of the roads to Texas, a much shorter journey that takes them closer to Houston and Florida and other destinations in the eastern United States. And on this day in 1969, Apollo 12, the second mission to involve a lunar landing, blasts off for the moon. And on this day in 1965, the U.S. Army's first major military operation of the Vietnam War begins with the start of the five-day battle of I Drang. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Hey, just a reminder, coming up in our next two segments, we'll talk with Gary Chapman, best-selling author. His latest book is a re-release, and it's titled God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. It's been updated, and I think you'll, uh, you'll enjoy it. He's coming up in our next couple of segments. Well, Representative Kevin McCarthy, a Republican out of California, beat back a challenge from dark horse candidate Representative Jim Jordan, a Republican out of Ohio, for the role of House Minority Leader and Representative Liz Cheney nabbing the title of GOP conference chairman. Well, the California lawmaker took a decisive victory against Jordan, bringing in 159 votes to the Ohio representatives, 43. McCarthy was um, initially elected to the House in 2006 and has served as the House Majority Leader since 2014. McCarthy knows what he needs to do, said GOP whip Steve Scalise, the Louisiana Republican, who was gravely wounded in last year's congressional baseball practice shooting and unanimously won the number two spot as minority whip. You always uh, look in the mirror and you see what you can do better, Scalise said on Tuesday. Uh, Republicans, he said, need to do a better job of letting people know what we stand for. Well, you do that by passing legislation, but I digress. McCarthy uh, takes over the role of GOP leader in the House with the retirement of current House Speaker Paul Ryan. And at a time when Republicans will be the minority party in the lower uh, Congress for the first time since 2011. Now, while this is an interesting uh, match up and uh, victory for Mr. McCarthy. A much more um, interesting um, contest will take place in about two weeks when Democrats choose the majority leader. A lot of the uh, new faces in the House uh, wearing the uh, Democrat um, badge are folks who campaigned on opposition to uh, Nancy Pelosi as the, uh, the House Speaker. She, however, is un- uh, uncontested at this point. And uh, it's it's going to be a toss up to see whether or not she has the support moving forward. She would desperately like to be appointed speaker with the idea that she would ultimately prepare and then hand over that role to some younger member. But we'll see whether or not that uh, if these younger folks are willing to allow her to do that, to save face, if you will, just a bit. So that will be interesting that uh, that doesn't happen until a couple of weeks from now. Meanwhile, Florida election officials asked federal prosecutors to look into allegations that state Democrats sent faulty forms to voters in four counties that could have resulted in mail-in ballots being disqualified. A top attorney in the Department of State wrote a letter to three Florida federal prosecutors asking them to investigate irregularities related to forms in Okaloosa, 
Santa Rosa, and uh, Citrus and Broward counties. The claims surround date changes on official forms used to fix mail-in ballots known as cure affidavits. The forms were due by 5 p.m. on November 5th, a day before the election. But records show forms sent out uh, said that the ballots could be returned three days later on November 8th in violation of the law. In a letter released on Wednesday, Bradley McKay, the department's interim general counsel, wrote, making or using an altered form is a criminal offense under Florida law. More fundamentally, altering a form in a matter that provides the incorrect date for a voter to cure a defect or an incorrect method uh, as it relates to provisional ballots, imposes a burden on the voters significant enough to frustrate the voters' ability to vote. Well, Oklahoma County Supervisor of Elections Paul Lux said she uh, suspected the Florida Democratic Party was sending out altered forms on purpose, according to documents first released by Politico. Please pass the word to the FDP. Uh, they can't arbitrarily add their own deadline to their forms uh, for VMB or VBM cures. This is crazy. That's a quote. You can figure out the acronyms later. Citrus County Election Supervisor Susan Gill said in an email exchange she suspected Democrats as well. She claimed she called a number uh, received by a voter who had gotten an altered form and that the number was to the Florida Democratic Party. The date issue is just the latest in a series highlighted in Florida as 67 counties race toward a Thursday 3 p.m. deadline for a recount, which we now know is not going to be met. Florida law mandates that any election decided by 0.5 percent or less will trigger a recount. Three in the Sunshine State fit that bill, with two, the race for U.S. Senator and Governor, being in the national Spotlight. We'll certainly continue to follow that story. Well, Maryland is challenging the appointment of Matthew Whitaker as the new U.S. acting attorney general, arguing that President Trump sidestepped the Constitution and the Justice Department's own succession plan by elevating Whitaker to the top job. Well, the Tuesday filing sets up a court challenge between a state and the federal government over the legitimacy of the uh, country's chief law enforcement officer and foreshadows the likelihood of additional cases that present the same issues. It comes as Democrats call on Whitaker to recuse himself from overseeing the special counsel's um, Russia investigation because of critical comments he's made about it in the past and amid concerns over his view on the scope of the judicial authority. In their filing, lawyers in the office of Maryland Attorney General Brian Frosch argue that the uh, the job should have gone to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein instead of of to Whitaker. Now, the president does have discretion, but there's some question about whether or not a uh, statute passed in 1966 by the uh, uh, by Congress uh, requires that that person uh, be uh, approved by the Senate, that they would have to have gone through the process um, of being approved by the Senate. So there's some dispute over that or a a, a law that was uh, passed many, many years earlier that would not have required that. They cite the statute governing the line of succession at the Justice Department that says that in the case of a vacancy in the attorney general position, the deputy attorney general may exercise all the duties of that office. If neither is available for the job, according to that statute, then the associate attorney general is supposed to be elevated. Besides that, the lawyers say the Constitution requires the duties of the attorney general, who as a presidential appointee is known under the law as a principal officer to be carried out only by someone confirmed by the Senate for the underlying position. 
Well, the state argues that Congress always intended for an attorney general to be confirmed by the Senate, given the national security and criminal justice powers inherent to that position, including the authority to control an investigation into the president. Without an established chain of command, according to the filing, presidents could select and then remove a series of attorneys general uh, until they got their way. Well, absent the Attorney General Succession Act, the president could fire the attorney general, then appoint a hand-picked uh, junior Senate confirmation a confirmed officer from an entirely different agency. Well, it goes on from there. And the back and forth will ultimately be decided, it would appear, in the courts, as so many things these days in Washington are. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice issued an advisory opinion confirming the legality of Matthew Whitaker's appointment as acting attorney general. Uh, That was today, as legal authorities across the ideological spectrum suggest the move violated a federal statute and the Constitution. The memo was prepared by the Office of Legal Counsel. It reveals that the Justice Department previously counseled President Trump on the matter and defends the president's right to designate temporary office holders under the 1998 Vacancies Reform Act and as a matter of history. This office has previously advised that the president could designate a senior Department of Justice official, such as Mr. Whitaker, as acting attorney general. And this memorandum explains the basis for that conclusion. So, again, the back and forth. And apparently the courts will resolve which version is more accurate. Uh, By the way, uh, new indictments from special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of Russia interference in the 2016 presidential election are expected very soon. In fact, they were speculated that could have come as early as today, CBS reported, citing multiple people with knowledge of the investigation. So I would say since we haven't heard anything today, this week is likely uh, going to be the case. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about Mueller's uh, investigation. So whether or not this is reliable, we don't know. But that's what CBS is currently reporting. Again, that uh, new Mueller in, uh, indictments are expected very soon, uh, possibly this week. Finally, the Portland City Council voted down Mayor Ted Wheeler's proposed ordinance that would have allowed him to determine when, where, and how long protests could take place within the city. The ordinance failed by a 3-2 vote. It would have given Wheeler, the, the mayor, who also serves as the police commissioner, the power to restrict how many people could participate in demonstrations. Well, Portland City Commissioner Nick Fish, Chloe Udaley, and Amanda Fritz voted against the ordinance. Mayor Wheeler and Commissioner Saltzman voted for it. The goal, according to the mayor's office, was to prevent violent clashes between protesters, which Portland has seen several times in recent months. October 13th, uh, dozens of Patriot prayer members brawled with uh, counter-protesters in downtown Portland, right wing, left wing, following the violent clash from which no arrests were made. The mayor called for a new ordinance restricting future protests. That effort failed earlier today. Up next, we're going to talk with Gary Chapman, his book, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We know because the scriptures tell us that God is love. But if God is love... Why doesn't everybody feel loved by him? Why do some people claim to experience God's love very deeply while others even question whether or not he exists? The problem, my next guest says, is that some people are looking in the wrong direction. 
Well, we're going to be talking with uh, best-selling author Gary Chapman and his book that's been re-released, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. Well, Gary Chapman is an author, speaker, pastor, and counselor. He has a passion for helping people form lasting relationships. And he's the best-selling author of the Five Love Languages series and director of Marriage and Family Life Consultants, Inc. He travels the world presenting seminars and his radio programs air on more than 400 stations. He joins us once again today to talk about the uh, re-release of his book, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. Gary Chapman, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Georgine. Good to be with you. It's always nice to have you on the program. Well, let's begin by reviewing for those who are perhaps familiar with the five love languages and introducing to others who are not what love languages are um, and uh, why it's important, what the premise is behind that. Yeah, in human relationships, what I discovered years ago is that what makes one person feel loved doesn't make another person feel loved. And so we can be sincerely loving someone, but they don't feel loved because we're speaking our own love language. That is what makes us feel loved rather than what makes them feel loved. So I discovered in my counseling after years of counseling, uh, fundamentally, uh, five basic love languages. And uh, they are just briefly uh, words of affirmation, using words to affirm the other person. You look nice in that outfit. Really appreciate what you did. Uh, There's acts of service doing something for them that you know they would like for you to do. In a marriage, that would be such things as cooking meals, washing dishes, washing cars, mowing grass, changing the baby's diaper, (laughs) anything you know the other person would like. Uh, For these people, actions speak louder than words. And then there's gifts. It's universal to give gifts as an expression of love. The gift says, they were thinking about me. Look what they got for me. And then quality time giving the person your undivided attention. These are the people who enjoy long conversations, taking walks together and talking, going out to eat together and looking at each other and talking. And then there's physical touch. We've long known the emotional power of physical touch. So the basic idea is that each of us has a primary love language. That is one of those five speaks more deeply to us emotionally than the other four. And so if you want to be effective in communicating love and thus meeting the deep need we have for love, you learn how to speak the other person's language. And when you each speak each other's language, you fill the love tank and you genuinely feel secure in each other's love. That's the heart of that original book. Now, how do you discover not only your primary love language, but the love language of others to whom you want to extend love in an effective way? Well, there's two or three uh, informal ways. One is observe their behavior and your own behavior. How do you typically relate to other people? If you're always giving people pats on the back and high fives, physical touch is probably your language because you're speaking your own language, and you can observe that in someone else. Or what do you complain about? The complaint reveals the love language. If you're saying, for example, in a marriage, you're saying to your spouse, I just feel like we don't have any time together anymore. I feel like we're ships passing in the night. You're complaining about not having quality time. Or if if your spouse says, I don't think you would ever touch me if I didn't initiate it. They're telling you physical touch is their language. So listen to the complaints, your own and the other person's. And then what do they request most often? Again, the request reveals the love language. If you're saying periodically to your spouse or to a friend, can we take a walk? You're asking for quality time. Or if you say when your spouse is getting ready to go on a business trip, 
be sure and bring me a surprise. <laughs> You're asking for a gift. You put those three things together, observe behavior, what do they complain about, or they request most often, you can figure the other person's love language. But of course, you can go online and take a free quiz at fivelovelanguages.com. Uh, there's a quiz there for married couples, one for single adults, one for military couples, one for teenagers. Uh, and you take a little quiz, and uh, it'll tell you what your primary love language is. Now, in the book that we're talking about today, God Speaks Your Love Language, you take the concept of the love language and apply it to our relationship with God. Uh, does God have a primary love language, or is he, as you put it, fluent in all of them? You know, that's the question that led me to write this book. People kept asking me, what is God's primary love language? What is God's primary love language? So I just went through the whole Bible, looking for ways that God expressed his love. And, of course, the Bible's full of that. That's really the story of the Bible, mm-hmm. God loving us. And I found God speaks all five of them, as you said, and he speaks them fluently. But here's what I also discovered. Pretty clear examples of where God speaks our love language, and that's what draws us to himself. For example, you take the Old Testament character of Jeremiah. Here's what Jeremiah said. He said, your words came to me, and I ate them, and they were the joy and delight of my heart. (laughs) It was words from God that sunk deep into the heart of Jeremiah. And a little later in his life, when he was discouraged, He said, I'm not going to talk about God anymore. I'm just not going to speak anymore in his name. But then he said this, his word was in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary with holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. (laughs) So it was the word of God that he responded to and the word of God that caused him to speak out for God. And so there are examples in the Old and New Testaments of how people encountered God. and, And there's also examples in church history and in contemporary Christian world. And so I, I give many of those stories in the book of how people actually came to Christ as he spoke their love language. Mm. Now, oftentimes we know because the Scripture teaches that God is love and that he loves us, but we don't necessarily feel, which isn't the best way, I suppose, to determine truth, we don't necessarily feel um, that he loves us. How do we Uh, better understand and recognize the love of God that is always being expressed toward us and poured out on us? Well, I think we have to look in the right direction. You know, often, especially if we're going through difficult times, we turn away from God. We say such things as, well, if God's a God of love, why did he let this happen to my friend or happen to me? And so we turn away from God, and we look at the problem. We look at the stress. We look at the pain we have rather than looking to God. The Bible's filled, Old and New Testament, with people who went through difficult times, painful times, unfair things happened to them. You either look toward God in the midst of your pain, or you look at the pain and the problem. And when you're looking at the pain and problem, you likely are going to continue to slide into depression, feelings of depression. There's no hope. Everything's bad. Even God's not breaking in here. But if you look to God, you know, the scriptures say, God said, if you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart, you look in God's direction, you're going to find God because God is looking in your direction. And especially helpful, if you know your love language, to think in terms of looking for God speaking your love language because he will. And he likely already is. It's just that you're so preoccupied with the pain and hurt in your life that you're not listening to what he's saying. Mm. 
Now, in your earlier writing, you helped people to identify what their love language is. Um, is our love language the same with God as it is with our human relationships, um, or can think, they be yeah. different and varied? Yeah. I think it tends to be the same. For example, those who have physical touch as their primary love language in human relationships are the people who typically will have dramatic conversion experiences, like Saul on the road to Damascus. It was physical. He fell to the ground. He was blinded. God got his attention. And you will hear people say even today, I was just sitting there in church, and all of a sudden my body started shaking, and I started weeping, and I felt God's arms around me. It was a physical thing for them. But not everybody has that kind of experience. You know, a quality time person is far more likely to come to God over a period of time. They start reading the Bible, maybe reading the gospel to see what the life of Jesus was like. And then they start reading Christian books, maybe going to Bible study. And then one morning in a quiet place, they just realize, I believe, I believe. It wasn't a physical thing. Their body wasn't touched by it. It's that this sitting down and listening to God and reading about God brought them to a place of faith in God. So I think, yes, I think our love language in human relationships tends to be our primary love language in our relationship with God. We're going to continue our conversation with Gary Chapman. Again, we're talking about his book, God Speaks Your Love Language, How to Experience and Express God's Love. Quick break. We'll be back. So stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking with Dr. Gary Chapman. He's an author, a speaker, a counselor. He has a passion for people and helping us form lasting relationships. He's a number one New York Times bestselling author of The Five Love Languages, and he's the director of the Marriage and Family Life Consultants, Inc. Uh, We're talking about his book, God Speaks Your Love Language. It was originally released in 2002. It's now been revised and updated for today's generation and includes an all-new chapter. So we're enjoying uh, this revision that brings up to date uh, this very important subject. Well, let me ask you how our interaction with other people is a reflection of our interaction and relationship with God. You know, this is an interesting part of the study uh, in this book, and that is that once we become true believers, we tend to express our love to God by our love language. So, for example, If acts of service is my love language, I will express my love to God by serving other people in the name of Jesus. I'm the one that volunteers to work in the soup kitchen. I'm the one who volunteers to go mow someone's grass. Because in my mind, this is the way you show love. You show love by actions. But a words person, if if words of affirmation is their language, they will tend to express their love to God in words in their prayers, in songs, perhaps even writing uh, things or speaking. I use Martin Luther as an example of this. You know, he came to Christ because he read in Romans 1, the just shall live by faith. And he was working hard to become accepted by God. And he said, when I read that, paradise broke in my soul. It was the word of truth that spoke to him. So what did Martin Luther do with his life? He poured out words to God. He wrote commentaries. He wrote hymns. He wrote sermons. He wrote the 95 Theses. It was words, 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 words. And so I think when we understand this, it helps us 
in two ways. One, we're less likely to condemn someone else who's expressing their love to God in a different way from us. And also, it gives us an awareness that these love languages, I can be the hands of God, the voice of God, in speaking the love of God to people if I realize that people have different love languages. So if I know their love language, I can communicate or seek to communicate the love of God in a language that's meaningful to them. So it has a lot of implications, both in our conversations with other people, as well as our heart reaching out to love God. Well, let's apply that to God expressing his love toward us. We know in his word what he says about that, and we believe it because it's God's word and he can be uh, trusted. But in recognizing the love of God that's lavished upon us in ways that we probably rarely recognize, how can we best uh, position ourselves to appreciate um, that love if we are perhaps fixed on what our language is? Well, I think two things. One, I think if we understand what our love language is, as we read the Bible, we're going to be drawn to those places where God speaks our language. For example, if gifts is your love language, you're going to see the things that God is giving you. For example, the gift of eternal life, the gift of forgiveness of sins, not just material gifts, but these things that we could not have for ourselves. And if this is your love language, those things are going to deeply move you to be responsive, to love God, because you see him loving you. And uh, on the other hand, uh, if a quality time is a person's love language, these are the people who are going to enjoy extended times with God. They can have an hour-long quiet time reading the Bible, responding to God, talking to God about what they're reading. Someone else would say, an hour? How do you spend an hour? I mean, I I, I spend 10 minutes. That's all I can do. (laughs) So uh, it becomes easier. It's more natural for us to express our love in our love language. But if if we realize there are these other languages, we can begin looking for God speaking those languages as well Mm -hmm. and realize that God loves all of us equally. And he loves us so much that he personalizes his expressions of love to us. You sort of describe that as a new dialect of our primary love language. Explain what you mean by that. And I think it, again, helps us to broaden our, uh, our understanding and perspective of God's expression of love toward us. Yeah, I think this, uh, Georgine, uh, you know, when we first become Christians and we start loving God, let, let's say acts of service is our language. Mm-hmm. We volunteer to work in the soup kitchen. So I go down there on Thursday night, I'm dipping beans, but when I look up in the face of the man in front of me, I see Jesus, because I remember Jesus said, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to me. Oh, it's so exciting to me, serving beans to Jesus. (laughs) That was 10 years ago. Okay, I still go to the soup kitchen, but now I'm not thinking about God. It's, It's just what I do on Thursday night. I go down there and dip beans. You see, it gets to be routine, and we lose the, the sharpness of it. And so what I'm suggesting is, I'm not saying stop going to the soup kitchen. I'm just saying use some other dialects of your language. Mm-hmm. If acts of service is your language, maybe go volunteer to mow the grass of someone who's in the hospital. Maybe go in the fall and rake leaves for the elderly. Go, go do some things. You know, it's the same language, but it's different dialects of that language. And when you do, it's alive, it's awake, because it has not become routine for you. And then I also suggest Maybe try speaking some of the other love languages to God. It won't be as comfortable for you as your natural language, 
but it it can be really meaningful to you if you stretch yourself. Let let's say you're not a physical touch person, okay? But let's say that you you want to you want to try to speak this language. You go to a nursing home, and you're walking down the hall where people are sitting in wheelchairs. Some of them can't even talk, but they grunt. Ooh ooh ooh. You just reach over and put your arm around them and say, I love you, and God loves you. And you can see them melt in your lap, Mm -hmm. you know, right there. Uh, So you you stretch yourself. It seems a little awkward at first, but you can learn to speak these other languages. And as you do, your relationship with God stays alive and awake and vibrant. And that's what God wants it to be. Yeah, yeah. I want to close with this uh, question about the cross. And you make the point in the book that the cross is an example of God speaking all five love languages that... Um, we would do well to to recognize. Yes, and I think when you really contemplate the cross, you do see all of that in them. You know, when Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Man, what an expression of love. Those words, if you reflect on them, he's being killed by these people, and he's praying that God will forgive them. Such love. And, and, And acts of service, it's the greatest act of service that has ever happened in history. He paid the ultimate penalty, death, for our wrongdoing so that God could forgive us and still be a just and holy God. Acts of service. And physical touch, you know, listen, they were destroying his body physically. They were it wasn't it wasn't love that it was his love that sent him to the cross but they certainly weren't loving him when they killed him but when you notice the life of Jesus you see him touching people all along the way i mean physically touching people but on the cross you see him loving his mother when he said to john your mother behold your mother mother behold your son he's looking out for he's doing an act of service for his mother mm-hmm. and he's giving john a way to express his love to god through that so you reflect and you find all the love languages at the cross the cross is the central event that happened in human history when god took our place so we could be forgiven and be the children of god forever mm-hmm. it's the wonderful message of the yes. gospel Yes. Once again, the book is titled God Speaks Your Love Language. It's been updated. There's a new chapter speaking to a new generation, how to experience and express God's love. Dr. Chapman, thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us here today. Well, thank you, Georgine. It was great to be with you again. You keep up the good work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Alistair Begg. He, of course, is the host of Truth for Life. Truth for Life is also the ministry of the month here on KPDQ, and we're going to talk about a re-released book by Alistair Begg. I think it has a whole new chapter, The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. As the ministry of the month, they're offering that book for a gift of any size, and there's also an e-book we'll tell you about that you can download for free. But Alistair Begg will join us at the bottom of, uh, is it the bottom of the hour? A little sooner, about a quarter after the hour. Anyway, looking forward to... uh, sharing a conversation about this book, The Hand of, uh, of God, and it focuses on the life of Joseph and, and reminding us of the relevance of uh, the details of that story that reveal God's concern and involvement in the details of his life and ours as well. So we're looking forward to that coming up later this hour. Well, the midterm elections have now come 
I was going to say and gone, but things are yet to be resolved in some places, so they're still ongoing. Um, But I'm always interested in a Christian perspective on the outcome. Uh, In an election, you have a group of people that's elated with the outcome. You have a group of people that's disappointed with the outcome and everything in between. And at the extreme ends, I suppose, of those uh, views as well. When I uh, see Randy Alcorn's name associated with virtually anything, I'm always interested in what he has to say because he is a thoughtful, biblical thinker and uh, a great writer that challenges us to put things into a biblical or eternal perspective. In fact, his ministry is called Eternal Perspective Ministry. He wrote on the subject, um, Thoughts on Election Results. You can find it at the OregonFaithReport.com. But he writes this, By now you've probably read and heard all sorts of commentaries analyzing the midterm election results. Whatever your political leanings, you're likely, you've likely been encouraged by some result and discouraged by others. For example, here in Oregon, Measure 106, which I shared about on my blog, he writes, and which would have stopped tax dollars from funding elective and late-term abortions, was rejected by over 60% of voters. But in more positive pro-life news, in Alabama, voters approved an amendment to their constitution that says unborn babies do have a right to life. And in West Virginia, voters said yes to a constitutional amendment that says there's no right to abortion. But no matter the results, here's a perspective we should always remember. And he's writing to uh, believers. He writes, America may or may not unravel in coming decades, but God's kingdom certainly won't. Neither the judicial legislative nor executive branches of our government is the ultimate solution to America's problems. Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two tells us the solution for the Lord is our judge. He's the judicial branch. The Lord is our lawgiver, the legislative branch. The Lord is our king, the executive. It is he who will save us. Hmm. That means we can always have great hope because our hope is in someone who is certain, unlike any country, Uh, And its political leaders do not trust in nobles in a son of man who cannot save. Happy is the one whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. That's not something we can say about virtually any politician of uh, recent memory. Psalm 146 verses three through six. Again, Randy Alcorn continues. Let's realize what Philippians 3.20 says. Our citizenship is not on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are citizens of another country, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are called ambassadors for Christ. Our job is to represent Him. Jesus and His kingdom is our reference point. Here are some more reflections I wrote after a previous election. Again, quoting from Randy Alcorn. In this breakpoint commentary written just before the election results were in, John Stone Street reminds us of four things that remain solidly true no matter our feelings about the election and whatever personal difficulties we may be going through. Even without knowing the election results, I can say four things with a great amount of certainty. Christ is risen. Christ is Lord. Christ will restore all things, and Christ has called us to this cultural moment. Those are four things I say a lot whenever I speak to groups. Often, I just repeat them to myself. They are four things every Christian should know, inwardly digest, and remember. Otherwise, we will be unable to make any real sense of our current culture and political moment. Those four things, again, that Christ is risen, risen, Christ is Lord, Christ will restore all things, and that we are called to this time and place are true. What I mean by that is that they are true with a capital T. 
They aren't true for me and not for you. They aren't true only for those who believe them to be true. They are just true with a capital T in the sense that they adequately describe the world in which we live. Not only are they true in our American context with all its political divisions and uh, illusions, they are true in every context. They are even true for our brothers and sisters around the world who face a cultural moment of persecution, oppression, and even death. Well, he goes on from there, and it's certainly worth considering. Again, quoting from Randy Alcorn, his piece appeared in the Oregon Faith Report, which you can find at OregonFaithReport.com. Thoughts on election results, and that's something we should uh, be mindful of virtually every year or two or whatever the cycle may happen to be. We will never never be thoroughly satisfied with the outcome of elections, but there are some things we can always be thoroughly satisfied with. Well, a Christian, uh, Christian student senator at UC Berkeley is being harassed for abstaining from a pro-LGBTQ vote. Now, she didn't vote in opposition to, she abstained from the vote. Well, a student senator at the University of California, Berkeley, who was kicked out of her own party and is being pressured to resign or face a recall because of her religious views, says she won't back down. Isabella Chow is a Christian student senator at UC Berkeley. She was harassed for abstaining from the vote, as mentioned. Well, Isabella Chow, a daughter of Malaysian Cambodian immigrants and a junior double majoring in business administration and music, said that she's abstained from a largely symbolic student vote on the 31st of October because she did not fully agree with certain clauses, not the majority of the pro LGBTQ plus bill, which passed from the support of 18 of the 20 senators, another being absent. She was labeled homophobic and transphobic and within two days felt that the whole campus was against her. Two weeks ago, the Queer Alliance Resource Center reportedly asked the student body to condemn the Trump administration's proposed definition of sex under Title uh, IX, defining individuals as being male or female as fixed from birth. The student government bills argued the definition of trans-exclusive, rolling back the Obama administration's uh, added protections for individuals who identify as transgender from harassment, denial of access to the student's preferred restroom, and requirements regarding medical documentation. Well, Chow's former party, party rather, student action left her with a decision to fully support the bills and uh, the LGBTQ lifestyle or get ousted. No matter how difficult this has been, if I don't represent the Christian perspective, the minority perspective, uh, there won't be anyone to represent these views, Chow said. I'm doing this for the Christian community. I know that I was called for such a time as this. Backing down is not an option, especially when backing down means giving in to political pressure and political correctness. Now, here again, we see an example where diversity is not really the goal. A superficial diversity, I mean, the fact that she happens to be a, a woman of... Uh, uh, Asian background, Malaysian, Cambodian immigrants. She's the, the daughter of, uh, but her Christian perspective is not uh, part of the acceptable orbit of of, um, of inclusion or, or tolerance. In her statement, Chow said discrimination is never, ever okay and condemned Christian bullies and bigots calling the LGBTQ community valid and loved even if their views were different. So she took a reasoned, balanced Approach, But there's no room for that any longer. That said, she went on to say, I cannot vote for this bill without compromising my values and my responsibility to the community that elected me to represent them. As a Christian, I personally do believe that certain acts and lifestyles conflict with that. Um, with that is uh, what is good, right, and true. I believe that God created male and female at the beginning of time and designed sex for marriage between one man and one woman. 
For me, to love another person does not mean that I silently concur when at the bottom of my heart I do not believe that your choices are right um, or best for you as an individual. Well, the bill crossed the line for Chow in promoting a choice of identities she doesn't agree with. Um, to be right or best for an individual in addition to promoting organizations contrary to those of her community. Well, several groups on campus, they issued statements condemning her, demanding she resign or face a recall, and the groups she aligned with disassociated from her, all except the Christian groups. Then at uh, last Wednesday's meeting, hundreds gathered in the Associated uh, Students of uh, the University of California chambers, the majority, one by one, telling Chow to resign with a large banner reading. Senator Chow resigned now, taped to the back of the wall. Leading up to the meeting, the Daily Californian ran an editorial criticizing her, but when Chow offered her defense and a statement, the student newspaper refused to run it and instead condemned her in an editorial calling for her to resign and accusing her of creating a toxic space for LGBTQ communities. Now, a toxic space where only one view is uh, expressed or permitted And uh, we'll see what happens. My guess is she will lose her position, but she's prepared to do just that. There are consequences. She's willing to face those consequences in order to stand on her convictions. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk with Alistair Begg. His uh, book is titled The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. That can be something of a challenge. We're going to look at the life of Joseph and what that tells us about the heart of God and his commitment to those he loves. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, let me ask you a question that's posed in the book we're going to talk about in just a few moments. Does God really care about me and the details of my everyday life? Now, we've read the scriptures. We see examples of God's care for certain individuals in scripture. But does that apply to me? Well, my next guest says a thousand times yes. Pastor and author Alistair Begg says that God's guiding and protecting hand shapes our every affair from our deepest trials to our loftiest triumphs. Well, Alistair Begg graduated from the London School of Theology. He's been a pastoral in pastoral ministry since 1975. He served as the senior pastor of Parkside Church in suburban Cleveland, Ohio, since 1983, and is the Bible teacher on the daily program Truth for Life, heard here on KPDQ-FM and our sister station, True Talk 800 AM. Truth for Life is our ministry of the month, and so I am just delighted to have Alistair Begg back on the program to talk about the reissue of a very popular book, The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. Alistair Begg, it is always a pleasure to have you with us. Well, thank you, Georgine. It's very nice always to talk to you. Well, thank you. This question of whether or not God is concerned about the details of my life is one that I think is often asked in the course of the life of a serious Christian when circumstances seem to turn south and we can't quite explain how God might be working uh, for our good. Uh, this is an age-old question, and you draw our attention back to the story of Joseph. Uh, yes, we do. And and actually, mentioning for our good is um, at the very uh, outset of chapter one, where uh, we have uh, Romans eight twenty-eight, which is, of course, so frequently quoted by by Christians and not always as understood uh, yes. as well as it might be. Uh, part of the problem that we have in relationship to dealing with the the difficulties of life is that when when we think in terms of for our good, 
uh, we tend to think that that must mean our security, our uh, prosperity, our health, our well-being, and so on. So we need to understand what, what the good is that God is working towards. And when we get that right, then it will at least help us to um, try and make sense of how it could be that bad things and difficult things could then lead to good. And uh, so Joseph, I think, is uh, one of the Old Testament pictures that can help us with that. I appreciate that you begin in the first chapter of The Hand of God by focusing on Joseph's family background and some of the early experiences of his life. Of course, his father, Jacob, his conflict with his brother Esau, that may have informed Joseph's view of life and and helped uh, him uh, moving forward through some of the difficulties of his life. Yeah, you know, I, I think we would we would probably want to say in contemporary terms that he came from a dysfunctional family um, because of uh, the fact that we live in a fallen world. Ultimately, all our families are dysfunctional, but I suppose some more so than others. And certainly his dad's background um, lent him lent itself to um, some of the things that unfolded. I'm sure it was uh, devotion on his part that led to giving him the special coat, but it wasn't necessarily the smartest move. And uh, Joseph's uh, interest in explaining his dream to his brothers clearly didn't go down really well, but uh, I'm not sure it would have gone down real well if we'd done the same thing with our siblings. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so so he, he, he set himself up in many ways for what was about to follow. You write that Joseph's life ought to be for us a story of great encouragement and reassurance as we make our way in the walk of faith. Now, if you start at the beginning and read through the details of his life, sometimes we sort of fall off in the middle, scratching our heads. How does this encourage us? And yet we have to read the entirety of the story to trace God's hand in Joseph's life. One of the questions I have about Jacob is, having had the conflict that he had with his brother, one would have assumed he might have learned something along the way uh, that that could have prevented some of the the difficulties that plagued his sons and certainly Joseph. Well, uh, you know, that's an interesting observation, but if you think about it, his sons now were following his pattern mm-hmm. in that they, they then... Uh, what what he did in relationship to his brother came back to haunt him, haunt him in relationship to his sons, in that they they foisted a lie upon their father, which they which they kept going for the greater part of his life, so that uh, uh, Jacob uh, the twister uh, was found himself in the twist of these circumstances, and uh, we have we have to sadly say that uh, it, it was a little bit like father like son. Hmm. A cautionary tale of for those of us who are attempting to raise families and be a good influence. This the story of Joseph really focuses on him beginning in chapter uh, thirty seven, and we we learn about the uh, the father's love for his son, uh, distinguishing him from his siblings, which creates all kinds of trouble. What what do we know about Joseph and how he responds to this? favor that's lavished on him by his father that we can learn from in better understanding how God works uh, in and for us? Well, I think, you know, we only know what the record gives us. And so I think that Joseph's response uh, to uh, his father's kindness is an understandable response. I mean, uh, the fact that his brothers were jealous 
is, if you like, in one sense, not Joseph's problem. But when you add to that the experience of his dreams, which he then felt was important for him to share, if you like, at breakfast time, then you realize how it is that his brothers would, first of all, are feeling themselves somewhat disenfranchised within the family in terms of his father's affections, uh, would now have occasion to say, uh, not only does he have a coat, but he's got some really bizarre ideas of his own significance and his own importance. And neither of them, none of them understanding really the source of all of that, all responded, you know, kind of true to form. That uh, Joseph says, hey, this is what I dreamt. And the brothers said, well, we don't like what you dreamt. And then they connive their plan uh, to to deal with uh, what they see as something of a threat. Now, you point out that Jake, uh, J- that Joseph's brothers hated him for a variety of reasons, including the, the, the dream that he revealed to them, the favoritism of the father. But you also point out that Joseph was the object of God's providential care. And for some, particularly new believers, perhaps, might see this as a contradiction that while he is hated by his brothers, he had been distinguished by God not necessarily because of his character or his performance uh, for providential purposes. Can you explain that? Uh, Because it can seem confusing to those of us who may not understand the character and purposes of God. Well, none of us, none of us is, is distinguished on the basis of our character. Uh, The story of all of our lives is the story of God's amazing grace that uh, Joseph, the, the danger in reading the story of Joseph is that we read it, we read it as a kind of moral tale. Mm-hmm. You know, Joseph was a good guy, and uh, we should be good guys. And isn't it strange that something bad happened to somebody who was so good? Well, no. The, the, the story is that uh, he was who he was, and it would be pretty well impossible for him looking forward or even immediately looking around him uh, to make sense of things. And and I find encouragement in that because often when I look around me or when I look through the windshield rather than through the rearview mirror, a lot of things in life I can't make sense of. And and so in that respect, I, I find encouragement in this, that uh, there, there's nothing triumphalistic about it. There's nothing that says, uh, uh, you know, look look how well everything went because Joseph is such a good chap. No, everything goes, everything hits the fan big time. And uh, the story of most of our lives is the story of disappointment, of, uh, in many cases, defeat, of discouragement. And that's why we need a whole Bible enabled in, in order to be able to understand things. That's why the Psalms are full of laments, as well as full of praise and of encouragement, because the story of life is the story of uh, both joy and sorrow. And the real, the real secret in it all is, just as we're trying to say, and that is how then do we navigate that and understand God's care, not only in the days when the sun is shining, but also in the days when the clouds are down and when it feels as though God has taken the phone off the hook and isn't answering his calls. Hmm. He certainly experienced a radical change in his circumstances. And you write that Joseph is about to discover, and this is early on in his saga, that although he is a long way from everyone and everything that represents security, he is still hemmed in behind and before by God. And the hand of God still guides him and holds him fast. He's he's in a learning process in which he discovers who God is through a series of uh, unfortunate, from our vantage point, circumstances, but God uses them to shape his character in a way 
that we sometimes want to avoid, but is absolutely necessary in order for us to grow up in God and to experience um, his care for us in a, in a deep and profound way. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the people who have, who have helped us as much as, as others are the poets and the, and the hymn writers who have managed to take this kind of uh, reality and, and turn it into memorable lines. No, no one uh, more so than, than William Cowper, the friend of, uh, of John Newton, when he writes, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He, you know, he plants his footsteps in the sea and he rides upon the storm. Well, the one thing about footprints in the sea is you can't see them. I mean, you can't see footprints in the sea. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's the whole point. That uh, now, now we have to learn. It's, it's like a child when, the, when, when all the lights go out at night, you know. And uh, w- will you be watching out for me, Dad? Or will you be there, Mom? Yes. Yeah, but it doesn't feel like you are. But I am. So the child is going to have to sacrifice their feelings on the strength of the promises of the ones who love them. And that is the story of the life of faith. And that's what Joseph was discovering. And it took him a lifetime, really, to be able to articulate it in the way that he does at the end of the story. We're talking with Alice. He wouldn't have been, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been able to say, sorry, he wouldn't have been able to say what he said at the end, at the beginning. No. <laughs> when he found himself, when he found himself in the, in the, in the, in the pit. We're talking with Alistair Begg. He is senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland, Ohio, the Bible teacher on our ministry of the month, Truth for Life. We're going to continue our conversation on the book, The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Alistair Begg. He is the Bible teacher on our ministry of the month, Truth for Life. And in the month of November, they're offering the book, The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances, for a gift of any amount. And you can uh, also download a free ebook, Made for His Pleasure, 10 Benchmarks of a Vital Faith. You can check that out at truthforlife.org. We're talking about the reissue of The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances, which is a timely book for every generation because we oftentimes uh, suffer through, endure, however you want to describe it, circumstances uh, that can sometimes confuse us and lead us to conclude that God has abandoned us. And yet the story of Joseph uh, reveals a a very different story as we trace God's hand uh, and providence, providential hand in the life of uh, Joseph. Now, this young man uh, starts out as a rather arrogant, pompous young man, but through a series of very difficult circumstances that challenge virtually every aspect of his life and character, he comes to a mature understanding of who God is. And as you pointed out a moment ago, at the end of the story, makes a profound statement that he could not have made uh, early on. How did God teach him through these difficult circumstances? And how do you think he recognized that God had his hand on his life through what seemed like impossible, very long, challenging, hopeless events? Well, you know, I think that we're only able to um, deduce from what he says at the end that um, his conclusion uh, to to the story is not one of vengeance, it's not one of recrimination, but it is it, it is one of forgiveness, and so that that then is an indication of uh, God's grace in His life. I mean, it, surely um, you know 
all of our lives are shaped and fashioned by circumstances. And I would have to say that in my own life, I think I have made more spiritual progress through uh, through disappointment or 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 maybe failure in examinations, uh, in tears, than I have made uh, as a result of success and laughter. I think it's one of the reasons that Shakespeare's um, tragedies have a far more lasting value uh, than Shakespeare's comedies. The comedies are good for a moment, you feel good, it's a nice time, but they go away. But the tragedies, they tend to live with you. And so we have to say that uh, the experience of being cast away from his home, from his father, rejected by his brothers, sold into slavery, attempted to be seduced by the boss's wife, ends up in jail. Uh, And then he comes out at the far end and he says, I don't want you to be upset. Uh, what, What is this? But it is a picture of the Lord Jesus, who was despised and who was rejected by men, who uh, on the cross says, Father, uh, why have why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And many times in Joseph's life, presumably that was exactly how he felt. Uh, because if he, if he worked on the basis of his circumstances, he would have said, there's, there's no way in the world that God is in control of this. But now, as he looks back, he realizes and is able to say to his brothers without any sense of, you know, connivance, you know, God planned this. God planned this so that so so that he would be a what? So that he would be a savior. And uh, and in that sense, again, he he takes us on through the Bible uh, to 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 Jesus himself. And it's worth remembering when we do Old Testament narrative that uh, that we have to make sure that we're not asking the question like, who is the Pharaoh in my life? Or, you know, uh, stories about the dungeon of my life. The real question is not, where am I in the story? The real question is always, where is Jesus in this story? Mm-hmm. Because the Bible is either pointing forward to Jesus or pointing back to Jesus, but always pointing to Jesus. There was a point at which I imagine Joseph was feeling somewhat hopeful. Potiphar had elevated him to have some authority over Uh, his possessions, and then the temptation comes. And we read uh, in uh, Genesis about the powerful response to that temptation, which, which may be somewhat surprising, but gives us a bit of a glimpse into the character and the, of, of Joseph as it develops in God's grace over his life during what is a vulnerable, but uh, very difficult uh, season. He then is plunged back into the worst possible circumstance. Can you comment a bit on his response to temptation? Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think what you have there in 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 that part of the story is is almost like a, a foreshadowing of uh the movie uh, Mrs. Robinson. I mean, all all that we're missing here is the Paul Simon soundtrack um because that is exactly what is going on. Here the older woman comes for the younger guy and uh you know, uh, the, the the remarkable thing about it is that it wasn't a sort of one-off. It was a sustained attempt on her part. And the only way that Joseph was able to handle it was because he did it out of a sense of conviction. Uh, he didn't he didn't sit around, apparently, and, and argue the, the benefits of it. You know, well, I suppose, or perhaps she's not really, perhaps her husband isn't this or that. The kind of nonsense that you get from people... Um, in in the course of pastoral ministry, no, he because he, we sow the seeds of of our failure in our minds, 
And so clearly in his mind, he had already determined uh, what his position would be. And therefore, once he had established his principle, he was able then to follow through on that. And uh, that, of course, makes all the, all the difference in the world. He's not, he's not saying, oh, we shouldn't do this because, after all, you're, you're, you're somebody's wife. Um, but he says, no, uh, why would I do this thing um, and, and sin against God? What does he know? He knows the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that is not a fear of what God will do to him, but it is a fear of the impact that he will have by uh, failing to declare his allegiance to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. Uh, the God into whom he has been brought uh, with a covenant relationship. And so it's it's very, very important, I think, especially when we're talking uh, to to one another in these things, that Joseph doesn't get into addressing uh, the issue of his desires. Um, you know, it's not that it's not the woman wasn't beautiful. Apparently she was beautiful um, or that he didn't feel any attraction for her. That wasn't the issue. Uh, it wasn't even the issue that, you know, adultery is not a good idea because people will be hurt. But the issue was that adultery with her would have been an act of wickedness against God. And that actually, in terms of sexual temptation, is the only ultimate defense. And when that is gone, then we've got no defense. Hmm. Now, he makes the right decision. He uh, flees this uh, temptation but then ends up in a dungeon. And I think, uh, again, yeah. for those of us who do the right <laughs> thing, great, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, and then we end up in worse circumstance. Can you, um, can you speak to that? Because I think a lot of people are discouraged because they may not have read on to the end of the story, may not imagine that God is continuing to act uh, on their behalf in their life to develop the character of Christ when their circumstances changed and, and discouragement and, and uh, sets in and frustration perhaps. Yeah, well, again, you see, it is, it, it is really helpful that this happens because, uh, and that's where, the, that's where the, the unfolding of the story, as you say, Georgian, is, is so helpful because we know that uh, often when we do the right thing, we, we don't imp- our circumstances don't improve, uh, but they actually, they actually get worse. But what did Jesus say? He said, you know, unless unless you're prepared to take your cross up and, and follow me, then you could never actually be my b- disciple at all. And I think part of the problem is the way that we continue to present the story of what it means to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. You know, if you do this, then God does that, and everything gets really nice and tidy, which, of course, is neither true to the Bible, nor is it true to human circumstances. Now, we're not all going to end up in the jail for it, but... Uh, we we may well find ourselves facing uh, the headwinds as the disciples did when Jesus told them to go across to the other side of the lake. And when he went up on the hills to pray, uh, the Gospels tell us that he saw them and they were straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And there's a way that, you know, people teach the Bible that says, so that must be because they were disobedient. You know, if, if, if they had been obedient, then the, the wind would have been at their backs. But no. In actual fact, the reason the wind was in their face was because they were obedient. Jesus had said, go to the other side of the lake. And there they find themselves in the middle of it all. Well, uh, that's the story of life. And that's the story of everybody's life. And the idea that the Christian life removes us from that realm is really just a very, very unhelpful story. And uh, 
that's why it's so wonderful when you come on a story like this and go, well, I can identify with that. You know, I I, I became a Christian and my boss fired me. I, be, I became a Christian and my girlfriend dumped me. I, you know, I decided to take Jesus at his word. And somebody said, well, if you're going to be like that, I don't want anything to do with you. Um, that's life. Yeah, that's the Christian life in many ways. Well, there's so much more to the book and certainly to the story, but <laughs> it's titled The Hand of God, Finding His Care in All Circumstances. And Alistair Begg, who's the uh, Ministry of the Month Bible teacher for Truth for Life, has reissued the book. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to talk with us. It's uh, such a uh, an honor to have you a part of the KPDQ family, and I appreciate your time today. Well, I want to thank you, and I want to thank you you all for the privilege of being the the ministry of the month and uh, we are grateful for the relationship we have with you and that you even carry the program at all so please extend my thanks all around if you would i certainly will thank you so much all right god bless thank you again Bye. you can hear the program truth for life weekdays here on kpdq at 4 30 a.m and 8 30 a.m and then on our sister station true talk 800 weekdays at 4 30 a.m and 6 30 p.m you can get the uh, book the hand of god finding his care in all circumstances Uh, The Truth for Life is offering the book for a donation of any amount. You can also download uh, the free ebook, Made for His Pleasure. Find out all about it at truthforlife.org. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, tomorrow is our annual Radiothon with Transitional Youth. And many of you are familiar with the work they do right here in the Portland metro Uh, area working with young people who live on the streets. And their goal isn't simply to prop them up and to uh, encourage them to continue, but transitional youth that works to bring hope and really a healthy transformation in the lives of these at-risk youth here in the state of Oregon and in Washington. They believe that relationship is the key, and so much of their focus is on building relationships that leads ultimately to discipleship. It starts for them, as is so often the case, with a meal, a conversation, an unconditional uh, regard for the value of each life they come in contact with, because each individual that transitional youth serves represents a distinct individual with a story uh, that uh, they are patient enough to to listen to, uh, to care about, and then to help these uh, young people move forward. So we're looking forward to our annual uh, Radiothon and would encourage you to make plans to not only join us, but even now to consider how you might help support their ongoing work. I know for many people, there's a a growing frustration with homelessness in our community. And particularly among young people, it seems so tragic for a young person to spend any length of time on the streets when they have so much of life ahead of them. And Transitional Youth is an excellent group that really focuses on the needs of, of these young people and communicates with them in a way that they can understand. Now, I would encourage you, if you are not familiar with their work, you can go to the website, which is simply transitionalyouth.org and learn more about it. But um, I want to just point out, because we don't always have time during the Radiothon to highlight some of the specific things that they do, but one of the features that I, uh, when Dan Rice was working downtown, I would see them every week at their street outreach. They provide food, clothing, footwear, hygiene kits to homeless youth. It starts with a meal. It builds into a relationship that honors their value, offers hope for a life beyond the streets. And my understanding is at Thanksgiving, they also put on a a spread for these young people as well. They also have a number of locations in which as these 
kids are transitioning off of the street, uh, they can go to these um, to these uh, ministry hubs. A Ritz Family Ranch in Yakult, Washington. They serve males uh, between the ages of eighteen to twenty five. It's a country home. It's a getaway from the city. I've had an opportunity to go out there, and it's absolutely beautiful. And they are uh, given an opportunity to uh, support themselves, to gain some skills, and to get them get themselves back on their feet. There's also the Junction House. That's located in Vancouver. It serves males 18 to 25. It's a home for young men in a variety of situations who need a safe, sober place to start again, to build a rental history and be a part of a healthy community of peers. There's the Beaverton House. They serve, again, the same population, males 18 to 25. It's a one-year residential program. They build self-sufficiency, self-respect, and healthy relationships. They work... um, and work on their education, their key components to that uh, program. There's Vita's Ark in Vancouver. They serve females 14 to 25. This home provides a haven for young mothers and their babies who've been displaced. Uh, women receive the uh, services and support that they need for a healthy new start in life, including uh, parenting skills, education, vocational training. And then there's Breaking Cycles, which gives the broader community an opportunity to support the work of transitional youth. It's a nonprofit coffee and bicycle repair shop. They offer street youth apprenticeships uh, as a barista or a bike mechanic. So again, it gives them the opportunity to develop skills and the the habit of regular work and so on. They learn business skills. They get the opportunity to dream, to reach, to achieve. And that's what transitional youth is all about. It's motivated by a love for, uh, uh, for Jesus and recognizing his love for those young people who live on the streets in our communities. And so we're going to encourage you tomorrow on the program to consider financially supporting this ongoing effort. It's um, They do great work. And as I've mentioned, I've had the opportunity to visit uh, some of the sites to witness the work they do on the streets and so on. So looking forward to uh, sharing uh, some of the stories from street youth right here in the Portland metro area and giving you the opportunity to join them in their ongoing ministry. And then on Friday, in fact, it's the first Friday in what, three or four weeks, I'll have an opportunity to just lighten up. I know that uh, while I was gone, James Blend and our operations uh, manager, Justin Mansfield, and a guest comedian, wow, a, a real comedian, although James is something of a comedian as well. Uh, they hosted a Friday program. I missed it. I'm looking forward to the podcast, but we're looking forward to having an opportunity to just take a lighter look at the the lighter side of the news. And that's coming up on Friday after our Transitional Youth Radiothon. By the way, we're looking at uh, Tuesday to focus on uh, and to share some of the details of the trip I recently had an opportunity to take Uh, So if you are uh, interested, that would most likely be in the five o'clock hour, but we'll give you more details as that is finally um, secured. I want to thank James Blind for producing and engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.